Anybody ever had um, a really bad case of unmet expectations? What if what if Will would have just announced, if you come Wednesday, we'll give you a thousand dollars, and then you get here Wednesday and we're like, oh no, sorry, sorry, we 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 don't have any money. That'd be frustrating, right? The, the most, I guess, harsh story that I can think of there, I know family, um, the mother, the wife and mother of the family, sick and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with her. And they ran test after test after test. And at one point, the words that they had were, one thing we can assure you of is you don't have cancer. Six months later, she was dead of cancer. That's disappointing, to say the least, right? <clears throat> we have a, a very bad habit, I'm afraid, of disappointing each other, of having expectations and them not being met. How many marriages have ended because of that? When I married this person, I expected them to be thus and such, and then they're not thus and such, so people get divorced. Unmet expectations. It's hard to take. It can lead us to a lot of different places, depression and anxiety and fear and doubt. What I want to talk about this morning is not only will we not have unmet expectations, in our salvation, our expectations are far too low. Anybody, anybody Star Wars fans? What, you know, that's the most crowd participation we've ever had. And I know I've referenced this before, but uh, Luke's trying to convince Han to go help. And he says, the reward would be more than you can imagine. And Han says, I don't know, I can imagine quite a bit. I want you to open up your imaginations this morning. And I want you to realize what C.S. Lewis said, which was, our, expect our expectations are far too small. Really, really, really good news to share with you this morning. Before we get into that, I do want to continue to remember where we've been. We are in point three of our outline of the book of Romans. And I can say this wholeheartedly, without a doubt, the book of Romans has exceeded my expectations. And they were pretty high. But we talked about sin, the need for being right with God. And actually, let me just quickly, what we said, the theme of the book of Romans is how to be right with God. So point one was sin, the need for being right with God, chapter 1-1 one, one through 3-20. And what we saw there was everybody's a sinner. Everybody from Adam onward was a sinner, except Jesus, who was born of a person. But everybody else born of a woman was born into sin. No choice. You don't have any choice in that matter. And what we saw in that was the wrath of God is being displayed even now towards sinners. And we're called to flee from that wrath. Well, how do we flee from that wrath? What do we do? 
Point two was justification by faith, the means for being right with God. And that means there's only one way to be right with God, and that is to be justified by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Paul used the example of Abraham to drive that home quite a bit. And that brought us to point three, which is where we're at today, blessings, the results of being right with God, which started in chapter 5, verse 1, and will conclude dramatically in Romans 8, 39. We are going to continue to talk about Asian Station and what this means. We'll actually get a new Asian today. It won't, it won't join Asian Station. But we will talk about another Asian today. But the first was expiation. <clears throat> and that was God removing the guilt of our sin from us. Expiation. Away, like exit. Exit. Your sin went away from this. The guilt of your sin went away from you. What did He do with it? He placed it on Christ, which was propitiation. And He poured His wrath out against our sins upon Jesus. And if you're sitting here thinking, we do this every week, yes, we do this, and we're going to do this probably every week. This is so important. God poured the wrath against our sin upon Christ, who was our propitiation. And then He took the righteousness of Christ and gave it to us. As a gift, that's imputation. He gave Christ's righteousness to us, which led to our justification, which means we have the right to stand in God's presence, what we just sang about. Before the throne of God above, a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me, I can stand in God's presence and God says, you belong here which leads to salvation, which is a past, present, and future occurrence. And that's super important for what we're going to talk about today. I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Unbelievable. Asian Station. We're going to look at Romans chapter 5. Again, we're going to read verses 1 through 11 again, just like we did before we started singing. And we're going to focus on verses 9 through 11 today. So if you would please stand as we read the Word of God. And I'll say it again. We do this out of reverence for the Word of God and the God of the Word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let me pray. 
God, thank you for your word. We trust your Spirit's ability to communicate it this morning. This is not about my words. This is about your words. This is not about my power. This is about your power. And may those words and that power be evident. And may they pierce our hearts and drive us to you. And may we find what we need, whether it be reconciliation that we don't know yet, or may it be a return to a relationship that you've made possible through the death of Jesus. Have your way in this place and in these people. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Okay. We're going to go from a white background with black letters to a black background with white letters. And we're going to start in verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. So, first word is what? Since. You ain't got no sense. That's not what it means. Since is a consequences word. Since I ate those donuts Wednesday night, Will, I gained two pounds this week. Those donuts were scrumptious, by the way. Anywho, probably wasn't just the donuts. But when we sense, S-I-N-C-E, we know that there will be something that follows. Since this, then that, right? Since there are actions, there are either consequences or rewards. Since, and then what's the next word? Therefore, and that's a weird combination. Since therefore. Since therefore. Since and then therefore. Since what and therefore what? The therefore is referring back to verse 8 where we saw last week that God showed His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. His death while we were in our sins resulted in what? Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood. So we've moved from talking about the death of Christ to speaking of the blood of Christ. Now why would that happen? What's the point here? Let's get some precedence. And anytime you want to get precedence in the Bible, where do you go? Genesis. Go back to the beginning. Let me show you something here about blood. Genesis 4.10 And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's... What? Blood is crying to me from the ground. Now he was talking to Cain here. Cain had killed Abel. God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So there's a, there's a relationship here between death and blood, right? Cain had killed Abel and God says, the voice of his blood is crying out to me. Now, Genesis 9. 4 through 6. God says this, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. That's important. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So you see the connection here? Life is directly linked to blood. 
The life is in the blood, is what this last passage said. So if blood is shed, in other words, if life is ended by spilling blood, reckoning has to come about. So when Christ died for us, what did He do? He shed His blood. That's what we celebrate here at the table, which is a really weird thing, right? For those of you outside of Christianity, it's kind of weird to celebrate the fact that somebody shed His blood for you. Seems weird. And you can bet those early Christians were talked about. They drink blood and eat flesh. They're cannibals. I'm sure that went around Jerusalem there. So when Christ died, He shed His blood for us. He poured out His blood instead of our blood being shed. Instead of our life being taken. Christ's blood, Christ's death, was in place of ours. We deserve death because of our sin. We deserve to have to shed our blood. But Jesus died for us. He poured out His blood on behalf of us. And so our verse in Romans says, since that is true, since Jesus' death, His blood, resulted in our justification, remember what justification was, the right to be in God's presence, therefore, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Since He shed His blood while we were still sinners, since He died in our place, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. He died for us before we were saved. He died for us while we were His enemies. So if that is true, now that we're justified by Him, much more, much more, much more, which is to imply, as amazing as that is, that He died for us while we were sinners, what is about to be said is even more amazing, even more effective, even more sure than the very death of Christ. And what, what is that? The surety of our being saved by Jesus from what? If you got your Bibles in front of you, Romans 5, 9, what are we being saved from? The wrath of God. Now this could go sideways real quick. Because when we start talking about the wrath of God, there's a lot of misconceptions. And you know what? I'm afraid that in general... Uh, that's probably too harsh. I'm afraid that there are instances where the church wields the wrath of God in a poor way. And what we try to do is, we try to scare people with it. Wrath of God's coming. Wrath of God's coming. Sinner, you better run. Wrath of God's coming. And there is a call to that because the wrath of God is coming. And actually, we spent chapter 1... Remember we're back when we talked about the wrath of God is being displayed from heaven even now. And that wrath that's being poured out now looks like this. God is letting man go his own way. And Paul said in Romans 1, what that looks like is they give themselves up to base passions. They give themselves up to unnatural things. And God lets them go. So that's the wrath of God that's being displayed right now. And in our culture today, we see the fruit of that. And I'm afraid we use the wrath of God like a weapon against those who don't believe. Be careful about that, church. The wrath of God is not yours to use as a bludgeoning tool against those who don't believe like you do. 
speak the truth in love and plead for people to flee from the wrath that is to come. Here in Romans 5, the wrath of God that is coming is different than the wrath of God that we're seeing right now. The Bible mentions this day of wrath in a few places. The wrath that is coming. Let me give you a couple instances. Ephesians 5, 3-6. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Because of what things? Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, foolish talk, silly talk, crude joking. Because of those things which boils down to sin. Because men sin, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now let me give you another example. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Boy, that sounds very similar, doesn't it? On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. That's bad news sad news. And in these two passages, we see that God is going to pour out His wrath on sinners. Now what does that wrath look like? Revelation 14, 9-12, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of His anger, and He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Now, let me go back. What does the wrath of God look like? This is what it looks like. It's bad. That's why we shouldn't use it as a weapon. We can't rejoice in this. That there are sinners who are going to have the God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of His anger and that they're going to be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now, snapshot there for a second. Hell is in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. And it's righteous. And what's it look like? The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. You say, well, that's about people that worship the beast. Listen, that's what sin is. That's what it boils down to. And if you are sitting here this morning and you haven't trusted Christ for your salvation, this is your destiny. This is your future. And it's awful. It's worse than you can imagine. That's what God's wrath looks like. And it's coming upon the sons of disobedience.
want you to feel the gravity of that. We speak of hell very glibly. And the wrath of God is not something to be glib about. The wrath of God is real and it is awful. The angel announces that those who worship the beast will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of His anger, and He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, who is Christ, by the way. The Lamb is Christ, Jesus. And then it says, "...the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night." Forget this obliteration talk. Forget this decimation and that hell is just destruction. It's not. It's eternal torment forever and ever. No escape. Those ought to be very sobering words for believers and unbelievers. God's wrath against sin and sinners who commit those sins is worse than you can imagine. Why? Here's why. Because God hates sin. We can say we hate sin, and I think that we hate some sins. But not like God does. God hates sin. And He will punish it because God's wrath against sin and sinners who commit those sins is worse than you can imagine because sin is worse than you imagine it. Sin is rebellion against God and sin seeks to rob God of His glory. And that will be punished. Hear this very clearly. Every sin ever committed will be severely dealt with. Yours, mine, theirs, everybody's, every sin will be brutally punished. The question is, who will be punished for it? You? Or will you trust the punishment that Jesus received upon His own body on your behalf? That's justification. That's salvation. And that brings us back to our Romans passage. The wrath of God is coming against sin, but if you are justified by trusting in the work, the death, the blood of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit says in Romans 5, 9 that you will be saved by Jesus from the wrath of God. And not only saved, but saved much more. Much more sure to be saved from that wrath. Those who are justified by the grace of God, as shown in the free gift of justification by faith in the blood of Christ alone, have absolutely no reason to fear the coming wrath of God. Now, isn't that pretty good news? Because it's coming, and we deserve it. But if we are hidden in Christ, what we just sang about a little bit ago, my life is hid with Christ. That wrath has no place in us, on us anymore. And again, you want to paint the picture as bleak and as black as you can to understand how good the good news is. The wrath of God is coming as sure as we're sitting here this morning. But if you are justified by faith in the blood of Christ, you have absolutely no reason to fear the coming wrath of God. 
absolutely no reason. God poured His wrath against the justified sinner's sins out upon the person of Jesus on the cross. Remember propitiation? His wrath was spent, poured out upon Jesus. Now get a hold of that. The Father poured His wrath out for your sins upon His Son. You don't deserve that. So if the wrath of God being poured out upon Christ was sufficient, why is the wrath of God still coming? Because not everyone will trust in the work of Christ. Not everyone will find relief from that wrath in the blood of Christ. So their sin is not taken away and their sin is an affront against a holy, vengeful God. And He will judge them fully for every idle word, every thought, every action that they said, thought, or done. And please hear me, it will be awful. And I believe that is truly horrifying if I'm a sinner. If my sins have been punished in Christ though, I am just as equally joyful because although I deserve that wrath, Jesus took it for me. And it assures that I will not ever taste that wrath. And that is amazing. Next verse. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Now this is just an overwhelmingly potent verse. Breathe it in. Breathe it in deep and rejoice, Christian. And it's pretty simple to understand, I think. Look at it. For, it's that word again. For if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, which means if God made peace with us while we were His enemies by sending Jesus to die for our sins, then much more... And that's the same phrase as from verse 9 that we saw earlier. Much more shall we be saved by His life. If Jesus' death brought peace while we were enemies, it's just logical that His life is much more capable of saving us now that we're God's children. If He worked on our behalf through His death when we were enemies, how much more will He work for us through His life now that we belong to Him. Christian, He died our death so that we can live by His life. Now that's a, it's a historical fact, not a hysterical fact that almost came out. It's a historical fact that Jesus died. Anybody got any qualms with that? Dan Brown, maybe? Da Vinci Code, Jesus didn't die. He moved to Britain and married Mary Magdalene. That's where the royalty came from. Take some faith to believe that, if you ask me. <clears throat> it's a historical fact. Jesus died. If that happened, and it resulted in our justification, it's even more certain that since He is alive and out of the grave now, and that did happen, that new life will act on our behalf and be even more sure than His death was. Did you hear that? 
Even more sure than the fact that Jesus died is the fact that Jesus is alive now and there's a purpose in that life that uh, redounds to us and we get the blessings of that life even more than the blessings of His death. Now, His death freed us from the wrath of God. That's pretty good. But more than that, His life does something even better. Now, I've I've struggled to think of an illustration to show how this might work. And I've I've struggled. I say that best I could come up with is this. Say there was a teenager. Any teenagers in here? Okay. Let's say there was a teenager who was breaking into your home. They were abusing you and your family, just beating you, hitting you, stealing your stuff being an overall nuisance. This person would be your friend or enemy. Be my enemy. Okay? What if they got arrested and during the proceedings they brought charges against them for everything they'd ever done to you? Every slap, every hit, everything they stole. And you could verify it. And they were going to be found guilty But in the middle of the proceedings, you stood up and you said, you know what, I forgive you. Not only do I forgive you, I'm going to pay your fine. I'm going to not send you to jail. I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to make you a part of my family. You, miscreant, who've been stealing my stuff and hitting my kids and terrorizing me for all this time. I not only forgive you, I pay your debt, and I want to adopt you into my family. Anybody here do that? Would you do that? I mean, really. You made them your child and loved them, and their heart changed and you blessed them, and they moved from stealing your stuff to loving you and to being submissive to you. After being in the family, they see that you work for them. You provide for them. You protect them and do all that you can to bless them. If while they were your enemy, you made great efforts to bring them to you, how much more will they see your love and concern for them once they belong to you? how much more will they see that you are for them and understand that from now on, they don't have to fear reprisal or hatred or wrath from you. No longer fear, but assurance and love where once there was animosity. That is a small, small fraction of a picture of what God did for us. We were His enemy. We saw that back in 5.1. 5.1 and 2. We were God's enemy. Maybe this morning you're not a believer and you say, well, I don't feel like I'm God's enemy. You are. God has an issue with you. You're robbing Him of glory. And while you're in your sins, Jesus Christ died for you. Now now that you know that truth, how much more will you see, wait a minute, He died for me while I was a sinner, brought me to Himself, so what does that mean now that I'm in the family? What will He do for me now? It just makes sense that He'll do much more 
than He did while I was His enemy. I've been adopted into the family of God. And the good news of this is this. Consequently, Hebrews 7.25, He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Oh my goodness. Since He always lives to make intercession for them. Now that's some tricky wording maybe a little bit. You know what it boils down to is this. Jesus is able to save us. We read it at the end of the uh, uh, of the music. It said, whom He foreknew, He predestined, predestined, called, called. Those He also glorified. He's able to save to the uttermost. Get us there, those who draw near to God through Him. And here's why Jesus is alive today. We sang it, because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, every fear is gone, I know. My life, my future is in His hands because He always lives and He is alive to make intercession for the people who have trusted Him, who have drawn near to God through Him. You know what intercession is? Intercession is Jesus working on your behalf to make sure that you stay in fellowship with God. Anybody commit a sin after you became a believer? Once or twice? A second? I grew up scared to death that one of those sins, many of those sins, would disqualify me from being right with God. And that, maybe you've heard this, maybe you have, I don't know. Once I started driving, one of my greatest fears was, what if I'm in a wreck and I say a cuss word and then I die in a wreck? And I don't, I don't have time to ask Jesus to forgive me for that cuss word. Oh, I bet I go to hell. What if I don't ask for forgiveness before I die? What if I sin and don't even know that I sinned? And what if there's a black mark and I get before God? He's like, oh, black mark, tag gone, wrath of God. It's not how it works. He died for me while I was a sinner. And He made me right with God. And now He always lives to make intercession for me. The blood that He shed is still effective toward my sins. Past, present, future. Because He lives at the right hand of God and He intercedes for me. He has placed His faith in me, Father. He's placed His faith in me. And you are... Listen, God is pleased with Christ. Therefore, He can stand before the Father and say, Look at me. Look at me. Remember the sacrifice that was efficient toward Him while He was a sinner. And now, my very life is given for Him even now. Much more. Much more. His life is for me. I've been adopted into His family. I'm not His enemy anymore. So how much more will He provide and protect and intercede for me? He always lives to make intercession for the believer. Wow! Verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So this passage, 9, 10, 11 ends with a powerful exclamation point that caps off what we've talked about to this point beautifully. Paul has been building this argument, making this point, 
since verse 1 of chapter 5. That's why we read the whole passage. He's been saying this, and more than this, and even more, and much more, and now he concludes it by saying more than that, which is referencing back to all that has been said, including how we were justified, how Christ died for us, how Christ poured out His blood for us, how we have peace with God, how we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, how we rejoice in our sufferings and get endurance and character and hope and all these things and thus and such and wow and amazing and unbelievable and more than we could ever dream or think. And now, more than that. After all of that, the top of the mountain is that we rejoice in God. You're like, well, wait a minute. It's not really the cherry on top of the Sunday I'm looking for. You want to know what is the highest high of the Christian life? Rejoicing in God. You want to know what is the highest high of the Christian life? It's rejoicing in the person of God. You see, the very definition of becoming a Christian, becoming a follower of a disciple of Jesus who is born again, is that in the new birth, you get a new set of affections. We, who were once enemies of God, are now children of God. You say, well, you keep saying that. Yes. Yes, I do. We who were once enemies of God are now children of God. We, who were those opposed to God, begin to delight in God and the things of God. We who had no hope, no life, have been given a life that was not our own, the very life of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul said earlier in this chapter that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And that's great. But this is better. Here we don't rejoice in a future hope, but the very present reality of who God is with us, who God is for us, We rejoice in God Himself. And that is the very definition of being a Christian. We get the benefits. We don't go to hell. We get peace and joy and love and all those things that would make us happy if we were left to our own. But more than that, we rejoice in the very power, the very presence, the very person of God. And that is the very pinnacle of the Christian's existence. And if it isn't the pinnacle of your existence, then your Christianity is not real. You've never been justified by the blood of Jesus. You've never experienced the love of God that surpasses understanding. 1 John 3.1 See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This love that has been lavished upon us creates in us a love that is returned to God Himself. We love because He loved us first. That was in 1 John as well. And we rejoice in God. And we do it through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since we have access to God through the work of Jesus, we rejoice in God's presence and we glorify Him as those who have been reconciled. We have reconciliation now as a gift that we have received. There's your other Asian. Reconciliation. 
Now listen, if you weren't at odds with somebody, if you weren't at war with somebody, there's no need for reconciliation. Husband and wife, can I get an amen? <laughs> that was a very masculine tone I felt there. <laughs> oh, there's no feeling like reconciliation once there's been some tension, right? We've received the gift of reconciliation. We who were actively fighting against God. You say, well, I'm not. Yes, you are. If you're not a believer, you are actively fighting against God. And you're fighting for autonomy. You're fighting for your own glory. You're fighting for your own happiness. And He steps in and gives you a gift. And He says, you know what? I have made peace with you. And what happens is, you look to Him, the giver, and you say, wow. You, you didn't have to do that. There's no reason why you should have done that. I like you. I, I love you. And it's a strange thing. This infinite, holy, wrathful, vengeful God who owes you nothing, sets His affections on you and says, I have made peace with you through Jesus Christ. Man, that stirs something in your heart. And what that stirs in your heart turns into rejoicing in that very same person who did what he didn't have to do, who did what he shouldn't have done, truthfully. That's, that's conversion. That's the new birth. You get a new set of affections. He's not my enemy anymore. He's my father. And I'm going to tell you right now, that love for God ebbs and flows, absolutely. And I'm not saying if you're in a low spot right now where you aren't really feeling it, that you're not saved. We'll talk about that in a second. But I'm saying this, if you've never experienced a love for the person of God, you're not saved. You're like, well, I don't know if I have or not. Let's talk about that. <coughs> Let's put all this into action. Three application points, one from each verse. Verse 9, what's the application from verse 9? Okay, I'm going to say it. Christian, you have assurance. Perfect, powerful assurance. Go back to Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. And this is another one of those things where it's a real fine line. Once saved, always saved. That's the doctrine that people bring up. You believe once saved, always saved? Yeah, I do. But be careful that you don't cheapen that into, well, I said a prayer once when I was 7 or 12 or 30, so I'm okay now. 
and you put your faith in that prayer that you prayed, that action that you took, that thing that you did, if that's what you mean by once saved, always saved, then no. No, I don't believe that. But I do wholeheartedly believe that if God reconciled me to Himself through the Lord Jesus Christ, I can't lose that. I can't. If I did it, I can lose it. If He did it, there's no way I can lose it. And man, what peace is there in assurance? God, I don't have to fear reprisal. I don't have to fear wrath ever again. Man, does that not put some cement under your feet that you can stand on and say, I'm not going to be moved from this. Trials aren't going to move me. We rejoice in our sufferings is what Paul said earlier. Because suffering brings endurance and endurance brings character and character brings hope. So when things get hard, it doesn't shake my cage and I go, oh no, am I even saved? God must be mad at me. Listen, Christian, God is not mad at you. He poured all of that wrath out upon the person of Christ and you can be assured that there's no more wrath left for you. None. Everything that He is doing, He is doing for your good. God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purposes. Romans 8. You can't get away from Romans 8 when you're in Romans 5, 6, 7. You can't get away from it. What assurance... What joy! <clears throat> Football illustration. Everybody, like, oh. I like to watch, and I have to watch old videos of the Redskins winning Super Bowls. It's been twenty plus years. There's a couple of spots in those where it gets dicey, and the game gets close, and they're behind. But you know what? I'm watching going in 1982. They win. I know it. So when it's fourth and one and they're about to hand the ball to John Riggins, I know what's going to happen. Still get a little tense. What if they tackle him this time? It's not going to happen. Listen, I want you to have that same assurance this morning in your salvation, in the hope of God, in the joy of God, because what God did in the past is a sure sign that He's going to do it in the future. And you don't have to worry about falling away. You don't have to worry about slipping up too many times. You don't have to worry about saying that cuss word before you're in a car wreck and not asking for forgiveness for it. Your future is as sure as your past. Assurance. I've met too many people who call themselves believers that are so scared that God is mad at them. God is not mad at you, Christian. You can be assured of that because of the life of Christ. That's fantastic news. Rest and enjoy and rejoice in the person of God. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved? And here's the phrase. By His life. Listen, Christian. The death of Christ resulted in you receiving the life of Christ. Now if He'd stayed in the tomb, forget it. It's never going to happen. But He didn't stay in the tomb. Jesus Christ died on a cross and He was dead. That was for your justification. Then He 
arose out of the grave and is alive forevermore, and that is the very life that you have now. And we saw in Roman in Hebrews 7.25 that He ever lives to make intercession for us. As effective as the death of Christ was, the life of Christ is much more effective right now and will be as effective, much more effective in the future. The death of Christ was for you, but the better news is the life of Christ is for you too. Dad, gum it. We have assurance. Verse 9, we have been given the very life of Christ and that, that pours out into us and out through us every day. And that leads us to point three. Listen, Christian. Rejoice in God. Verse 11. Yes, I will read it again. More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. You have been reconciled to God. You have peace with God. Enjoy that. Rejoice in God. Enjoy God. Knowing you are kept by God and given the very life of Christ, everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. God is with us. God is for us. We are His. He is ours. Rejoice in that. That is the Christian life. Now you say, but wait a minute. Things are hard. Things are rough. Yes, they are. And in the midst of them all, God Himself makes Himself available to you. And He says, You are my dearly beloved. And I will not let anything separate you from me or me from you. Trials, temptations, sufferings, doubts, questions, sins, they can't separate us. Rejoice in that. I've got assurance. I've got the life of Christ so that I can stand in the very presence of God and rejoice. Paul said, I have learned the secret. Whether I've got much, whether I've got little, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Even rejoice in God. In the worst of times, the hardest times, knowing that my future is certain. My future is sealed. Now listen, the climb up the mountain will be hard. Slips and slides and falls and scrapes and cuts. Yep, that's going to happen. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. Take heart. Rejoice. I have overcome I'm telling y'all something this morning. The gospel is good news. And maybe you're sitting here this morning, you're like, this is a bunch of gibberish. This is all stupid. Let me hold it out to you. And let me explain to you again what the Bible says. So I don't believe the Bible. Fair? I do. The Bible says that we're all born sinners. Every one of us. We are born at enmity with God and that God took steps 
very sure, very calculated steps to come into the world through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was God in the flesh. He was born of a virgin. Sounds crazy. Happened. Lived a perfect life. Fulfilled the law. And then He died on a cross like a sinner because He took your sins upon Himself. And if we are going to know joy in God, if we are going to know a hope and a future, we come to God and we say, I believe that Jesus paid the penalty for my sins. I put my faith in Him, not in my own works. You cannot earn your salvation. It is a free gift. Come to God and say, I believe it. I trust that what Jesus did satisfied you. Something happens when that happens. You get a new set of affections. And God becomes your treasure. Jesus becomes beautiful. The wrath of God is removed. And the peace of God that passes understanding fills your hearts and minds. And you get to rejoice for all eternity. So if you don't know God this morning, if you don't have peace with Him, one way, we are justified by faith in the finished work of Jesus. God, I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I need help. I can't do this on my own. And God says, trust Jesus. You say, I trust Jesus. And He says, forgiven. And that cannot be taken away from you. Let's pray. God, I thank You that we are rock-solidly assured of eternal fellowship with You because of what Jesus did. God, I thank You that even now You remind us that You have given not only the death of Christ to us, but You have given the very life of Christ to us as believers. And God, I pray that right now that You would supernaturally through the power of Your Holy Spirit stir up our affections for You so that we can rejoice in who You are. Yes, the gifts are great, God. Peace, righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. Those things are great. But even more than that, God, we rejoice in You. Our affections are directed and fulfilled in You. The God who we once were enemies of, who is now our Father because of the work of Christ, because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Teach us, God, what it means to be assured of that and to rejoice in that as the very life of Christ is lived in us and through us. God, I thank You for the Bible. I thank You for the sureness of it. There's no loopholes. And I thank You for Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen.